Well, I'm happy and excited to be with our Christ Journey family today. And some of you who were here last week remember that I said I was uh, considering shaving my head like, <laughs> like Paul did for a vow, you know, for his ministry. I guess you can tell I didn't do that. Um, but I did get a bald cap, um, which is also more pale than my face, so I don't have the courage to put that on either. But I did think about it, so I just wanted you to know that. Um, but the reason that I'm happy, this is our last message in this series, and I'm not happy just because it's the last message. I'm happy because this series has been interesting to me. It's been rewarding to me. It's been surprising to me, and I hope helpful as well to you. But the reason that I'm most excited about this is because ancient Ephesus, the last stop on this journey, and modern Miami have much in common. Like what? Well, Ephesus and modern Miami are, could both be called City on the Edge. Uh, Miami was named City on the Edge by Cuban-American sociologist Alejandro Portes, who was a professor at FIU then, now at UM. I think he was at Princeton for a while. But he did a book back in the day when Time Magazine ran a cover story on Miami as the American Riviera. And uh, the, the front page simply said this, Paradise Lost? Question mark. City on the Edge. Now, geographically... We're on the edge of the continent, just as a major hub for the economy of the entire hemisphere. Ephesus, likewise, was also a stepping-off point um, on the edge of Asia Minor. Actually, it was one of the five largest cities in its time, Ephesus was. Uh, on the, on a, in Asia Minor and on the major trade route from east to west on the Aegean Sea. Now, Miami, as you know, is a global city on a regional scale. It's the de facto capital of Latin America. Um, Brickell Financial Center has the second largest concentration of international banks outside of New York. Did you know that? Largest concentration of international banks outside of New York, right here in our Miami. Um, Ephesus was also a, world, a wealthy commercial center of the world for its day, the financial center of all of Roman Asia, that entire block of land. Greater Miami is an immigrant city. More than half of our population born outside the United States. This is the largest proportion of immigrants in any metropolitan area in the country, our Miami. Ephesus, ancient Ephesus likewise, had all kinds of people from all over the world that populated its streets and operated its commerce. Though Ephesus was not the intellectual powerhouse that Athens was in its day, it did have the third largest library in the Roman world, the Library of Celsus. Here's a shot of our group visiting the library. Hey, what did Miamians do when they went to Ephesus? Oh, we went to the library. And though Miami, as you know, isn't the research triangle, nor is it the Ivy League, you got to know this, uh, we have a powerful and competitive university system here, University FIU, by the way, international business program has been ranked number two in the nation, number two in the nation, international <laughs> business program. The MBA that's offered there is number five 
in the nation, come on, like our Miami. Of the 4,000 colleges and universities in the United States, the University of Miami ranks number 55. That's top 1% territory right here in Miami. Now, yeah, I'm, yeah, if you're not in Miami now, you should come, you know, wherever you are, come visit us, come, we got room here for you, we're thinking about you. Ephesus was a spiritual and a sensual place. Miami is too. Miami has another similarity with Ephesus culture. Ephesian culture was familiar with the practice of the dark supernatural. Demons, witchcraft, sorcery, Miami likewise is no stranger to such things with island religion, voodoo, santeria, animism. In a time when only men could vote, did you know this? Miami was founded by two women, Julia Tuttle and Mary Brickle. Hey, Ephesus likewise tracks back to Amazons. This is the legend. Amazon women founded the city of Ephesus and gave birth to the cult of Artemis, one of the most revered Greek deities, virgin warrior. She asked her daddy if she could be an eternal virgin and then was also honored as fertility goddess of the hunt. It's an interesting juxtaposition, isn't it? A virgin warrior, but a fertility goddess. We'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, she's mostly depicted with a weapon in her hand. To the Romans, she was Diana, and her temple in Ephesus was considered one of the wonders of the ancient world, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's four times larger than the Parthenon in Greece. All there remains today are ruins. There's like one column standing, that's it. But, um, but at its time, it's about the size of a football field. The, the entire temple was the size of a football field. Now, Miami skyline, did you know this, is the country's third tallest. Third tallest. New York City, Chicago, Miami. And plans are in play right now to build the tallest residential building south of New York City, right here in the 305. So both Miami and Ephesus are centers of learning, politics, population, entertainment, banking, art, and eternal impact. God wants to bring eternal impact to Ephesus and Miami Eternal impact in a global scale that's personal in nature, one life at a time. Amen. He wanted to do it there then. He wants to do it here now. We're praying that it'll happen for somebody, maybe you, today. That's life mission 2.0. That's life mission on a whole other level and scale. And ancient Ephesus is the last stop on his second missionary journey, but it's also the longest stop on his third missionary journey. So we're going to hang out in Acts chapter 18 and 19 today uh, and try to see what does Ephesus represent to Paul. And I've just made a brief list of those, those items that perhaps you could use to take a personal checkpoint and see where you are and when Ephesus might be your moment. How can you tell you're in an Ephesus moment? Well, five items. Number one, there's a new opportunity to do God's will. 
Chapter 18, verse 21. Paul's in Ephesus. They ask him to spend more time there. I mean, he got there. Now he's getting ready to leave. They say, oh, no, don't leave. And then as he left, he promised, now, I will come back. What? Would you say this with me? If it is God's will. One more time. If it is God's will. Well, he did come back. On the third missionary journey, which tells us, well, I guess it must have been God's will, right? So that tells us something about Life Mission 2.0. Because God spent his life seeking to know and do God's will. You want to raise your level of life to 2.0 status, then learn how to pray for real like Jesus taught us to. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in my life as it is in heaven. Doing the will of God matters in Paul's life mission. And that's how yours will rise to that occasion too. Are you in an Ephesus moment? You are if you are seeking to know and do God's will in your life. Number two, it meant a new journey beginning. In verses 22 through 28, we see what scholars consider the start of his third missionary journey. So we got the same life, it's the same Paul, but he's opening a whole new chapter. It's going to be a whole new day in his, in his journey life. Are you, would you be, is it time for a new beginning in your life journey? Same you. Same life. Is it time to open a new chapter in your journey? You're in an Ephesus moment. Are you open to that moment? See, new beginnings mean that you cannot stay where you are. Here's the thing. If you want to cross home plate, you have to leave third base. Same thing for you. You want to rise to life mission 2.0, then are you willing to get on the move? Are you willing to take action? You know, the book we're studying is called what? The Acts of the Apostles. Not the ideas of the apostles. Not the pleasant thoughts of the apostles. Not the wishful thinking of the apostles. It's called the acts of the apostles. Why? Because faith without works is dead. (laughs) These are people that are on the move, willing to move when God says go. Are you willing to take action? Then it may be an Ephesus moment for you to take action by faith, living faith, that moves you from where you've been to where he will take you. Number three, it means new colleagues, new team members. As you read the next chapters, you know, you're going to see new names showing up in the journey, joining the team with Luke, with Timothy, with Silas, with Paul. Now you're going to see a Priscilla, Aquila, Erastus, Gaius, Aristarchus, and then, if, and then some unnamed disciples of John the Baptist who show up in the story. And then if you kick over to chapter 20, by chapter 20 when this journey is concluding, you got six more names there. So it's like, man, this friendship circle just keeps enlarging. Can I ask you, are you willing to welcome new people into your circle of love? of mission. This is life mission 2.0. As God calls them, are you willing to welcome them to your serving team, to your small group, to your home, to your life, to your church? You know, make new friends, but keep the old. Some are silver and the others gold. You know, just let your life be enriched. This is Life Mission 2.0. Make some new friends. 
Don't just sit in the same place and hang out with the same people when you go to God's house. Say, I want to move up and make some new contacts. Number four, other people coming to full faith. New people coming to full faith. God's life in and through you can help others complete their full turn to Jesus Christ. We see this in Acts chapter 19. Uh, it says that Paul has arrived in Ephesus and he like encounters some disciples who have received John's baptism. What does that mean? That means, well, they've started their journey. John said, are you ready for a change? And they, he said, come get, get wet if you're ready for a change. So they were saying, we're going to turn from the way we used to live. But he didn't say, turn to Jesus as the source of your forgiveness and, and life change. It's only John's baptism. It's just the front end. It's just saying, okay, I'm ready for a change, and I want to stop living the way I've been living. But it was only halfway there. And so turning from the old way of life, they hadn't quite learned about trusting Jesus as the risen Christ. When I offer a prayer of faith at the close of most of my messages, I'll say something like this in the prayer. Lord, forgive my sins. Come into my life as I turn from going my way, that's a John the Baptist moment, that's called repentance. I turn from going my way as I learn to follow you. I'm trusting Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. That's what they're talking about. So these guys were halfway there. They were ready for a change. They didn't want to keep doing the same old, same old, but nobody had said, you know, Jesus is the rest of the equation. They had turned from their sin but had not yet received Christ in the presence of his Holy Spirit. Following Jesus Christ, maybe this is what you need to know today. Following Jesus Christ is a matter of trusting him personally as your Savior and following him as your Lord. It's not just about going to church. I'm so happy that you've attended, but i got to tell you, going to church doesn't make you a Christian, doesn't make you saved any more than going into your garage makes you a car. Or going to the bakery makes you a pastelito. You know, that's not, you, you may be looking religious and you may be saying religious things, but it's not about what's happening in your head and in your environment. It's has it happened in you yet? Have you turned from your old way of living and said, but I got to have more life in Christ? That's your Ephesus moment. Maybe it's your moment today to say, Jesus, I got to have eternal life. That's 19, Acts 19, 1 through 7. Faith is a journey. So it's okay to start, but don't stop until you're there, right? Trust Christ for yourself and receive his work in you. Then number five, Life Mission 2.0 means new challenges. New challenges. Oh, my. I mean, the story starts in the synagogue. Paul starts in the synagogue. That's not new. He always goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. It was his habits, what he did. But this time, when they invited him to leave, and he shakes his dust off, he goes to next door. It's the Hall of Tyranus, or it's not immediately next door. It's in the marketplace. Um, this is the marketplace, by the way, where uh, Tyranus Hall would have been located, and Luke also notices, he notes there that there were some power encounters going on in Paul's life. Um, but Paul, the point is, he's, he's got to pivot. He's got to roll. He's got to be ready for some new challenges. What kind of challenges? Well, Ephesians 19 says in verse 11 that God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. 
Now, you know what? He didn't do that all the time, but he did it at this time. Why? Well, maybe we're about to find out that there was a new power on Paul here. Why? Well, by the end of verse 12, it says he was facing evil spirits, and they were leaving people. And verse 18 says that there were people that were doing evil deeds. There was evil in the culture. And then verse 19 says evil books. There were evil books in their libraries that they were reading and following and practicing. And, and so all of these three layers are like Paul's encountering dark power. So what's the saying? New level, new devil. That's what's happening here. This is a whole new challenge that he's facing. And uh, it's in this chapter that we see a group of exorcists in the city. They're not Christians, but they went around trying to practice their trade and cast out demons, and they saw that Paul, man, this guy's got power. So they take quotes from his ministry and use his name to try to increase their margin and their market share. And uh, so verse, it says here that uh, one day they were trying to cast out an evil spirit. And they said this, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And uh, one day an evil spirit answered them. You know, his spirit said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, who are you? <laughs> verse 16 says the, the guy with the evil spirit jumps on them, overpowers them, and then gives them such a beating that they run out of the house naked. They go streaking down the street bleeding. What's the point? If you want to deal with dark powers in your life, you've got to be sure that you are all the way in Christ. In Christ. That's where the story begins. Not halfway, not half-baked salvation, but all the way in. Chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. Don't stop with a half-baked salvation. When you're trying to face the dark powers, that's what the exorcists were doing, you know. They they're simply use their trust Jesus. Trust Jesus, not yourself, not your works, not your thoughts, Jesus. Then next, don't stop, don't settle for hand-me-down religious words. You got to get to know Jesus for yourself. Now I'm thinking about young people and children in our congregation that thank God for parents and families that want to help us know the words of God so that we can know and follow Jesus. But I got to tell you, young people... Young people, listen, if all you do is quote, hand me down religious words, when it comes to facing dark powers, you may be taken by surprise. Somewhere along your journey, it has to become your journey, your Savior, your Lord. If you want to conquer the dark powers, then you got to be able to say this, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Thank God for parents who have Christ living in them and for a church that wants to say, we want all about Jesus. But you got to make your own decision. Are you, have, you, have you found that Ephesus moment yet? Have you crossed over to full salvation and not just religious quotation? And the next thing you know, people are moved by shock and awe, just 
all through the city. It seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. And look at this. A number who had practiced sorcery, verse 19, brought their scrolls, all those evil books, and they burned them publicly. And the value of the scrolls was like 50,000 drachmas. How much is that? $95,000 in today's economy. And this is a public profession of faith that's bold. This is like, oh, the real deal. <laughs> you give, it's going to cost you something? You know, Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. This is a question of how much am I willing to say Jesus into your hands? This is a public profession of bold faith that is found right in the middle of a spiritual battle of warfare. So here's the question. How are you and I, how are we to face and overcome dark forces in our lives when they present? And we've already gone over the answers. Number one, trust Jesus. Trust Jesus all the way. <laughs> Not just a Sunday Jesus. We got, we got an everyday Jesus for everyday challenge. And then we've got an overcome the evil Jesus by the resurrection when evil comes your way. You got to trust him all the way. Then secondly, you got to know Jesus. <laughs> don't just know about him in your head and quote somebody else. Man, don't say, well, Bill said. Don't say that. You need to know Jesus for yourself in a personal relationship of faith by grace. And then you got to go with Jesus all the way in, holding him in high honor and then leaving, be willing to leave your dark past in the ashes. That's what's happening in Ephesus. Burn it up. I mean, Ephesus was a center for black magic and occult practices. So if that's been part of your past life, here's what the scripture says to you. Get rid of it. Walk away from that stuff. Burn it up. Put a match to it. Flush it down the toilet. Don't mess with it. This isn't just a hobby, a harmless. This, this isn't harmless entertainment. There's some evil connected to it that you don't want to be part of. So what Paul, for Paul, uh, this new challenge has him stepping into a new level of spiritual warfare. And it also meant responding to the cult of Artemis. Virgin warrior deity, fertility goddess of the hunt. Recent archaeology has scholars debating this one. They're arguing about it right now um, over whether this cult was only females allowed. All female, anti-male. It's part of what eternal virgin means. Self-contained. Anti-marriage. Because if you want to stay a virgin, don't get married. And then competitive Engendering fear among women that are delivering birth. I mean, there's some stories in Artemis's story about curses that Artemis can make on your child that won't survive birth. So a lot of women, you can imagine in Ephesus, they wanted to be sure that they're okay with Artemis so that their kid is going to make it through childbirth. And it was also a mix of sensual and sexual immorality. Her image was a half-naked, multi-breasted female that's covered with fertility symbols. And uh, this statue was what occupied that temple that is now in ruins. And they still sell these small statues in stores all across Ephesus. It was a new kind of female idolatry. And speaking of new idolatry, 
Ephesus later in the first century was also where the Apostle John would be living. And when it hosted a temple to the emperor, the Roman emperor, I believe Domitian built it. And he was now demanding that all the citizens that lived there needed to bow and offer him their worship and pray to him as their God. And of course, John's not going to do that. There's only one God. It's not Caesar. His name is Jesus, is his Lord, and when he refuses to bow, he gets exiled to Patmos, which is where the Lord Jesus meets him and gives him a vision that we now studied for three months in the first part of this year called the Revelation. But this is all that's left of the emperor's temple today. In Paul's day, Acts chapter 19 tells us that the silversmith, the local craft businessman, who made the images of the goddess, was also making a killing off of the prophets. Because people would come from everywhere to have an image of their goddess, and, and they made lots of money doing it. And when Paul's gospel impacted, you can imagine, it's happening in this city, and it sparked a riot that ignited rage against Paul and now his whole team. I mean, the mob has dragged them out and are taking them out into, the whole city is in an uproar, pours into the amphitheater that's there, still there, by the way, 25,000 seats, pretty impressive. And there's a picture that I took, and there's another one from overhead that uh, you can see. That You can just imagine this. The whole place is surging with anger, with confusion, and, uh, and somebody starts to chant, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And this chant goes out. Dr. Luke says it lasts two hours. They're, they're just shouting in unison about two hours. Finally, maybe they run out of gas. I don't know. But a local, a local uh, official gets up, calms the crowd down, tells them that they have legal processes for voicing these kind of complaints. If, they, if anybody has a true grievance, then please press charges and handle it through channels. If not, then this meeting is adjourned, dismisses the crowd. Now, that seems to be the end of Paul's journey in Ephesus, his visit to Ephesus. But we read later in his letter to the Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians, a personal note of disclosure telling us that while he was in Ephesus, he was facing perhaps the deepest and darkest, lowest place that he had ever experienced in his life. Here's how he wrote about it. You know, 2 Corinthians is very autobiographical, very transparent, very vulnerable. Paul's like giving us a, an insight into his journal. He says, we were under great pressure. Man, the load was coming down on us. This tremendous mega pressure coming down on us far above, far beyond our ability to endure. And I'm going down for the count so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt like we'd received a sentence of death. Man, I'm on death row. My days are numbered. I'm going down. It's not going to happen. I'm going to die. He feels crushed. He's overwhelmed. He's depressed. He thinks he's going to die. He's not going to make it. It's like this huge steamroller of weight has just 
crushed him underneath it, and now he needs a spatula. You know, somebody with a big spatula to come by and just like scoop me up and peel me off. It's the lowest point of his life. Luke doesn't tell us that story in his recounting in Acts. Paul tells it, though, in his personal autobiography. You know, sometimes a biographer won't tell you the whole story about the person. You've got to listen to the person who experienced it. That's what you get if you read the letter to the Corinthians, the second letter. So not only was Paul facing external opposition from the synagogue leaders, faced that before, but he's also got dark supernatural forces that have been unleashed on him, evil spirits. Addition to that, he says there's this female cult that practices its idolatry, women all weaponed up. And then there's these greedy businessmen who are running the economy. And now he's also got this emotional depression coming on him from the inside. And so for Paul, Ephesus meant spiritual warfare from every angle. I don't know if you've experienced that. Can I ask you, have you yet met full-on resistance to your spiritual journey in Jesus Christ, your life mission for God? Then maybe you're not on it yet. Have you yet experienced full-on resistance to your life mission 2.0 with God? Because when you're on that track, this is part of the journey. You're going to face spiritual warfare. Jesus said this, whoever wants to be my disciple, they got to deny themselves, take up their cross. There's only one reason people in the first century took up a cross. It's because Romans made them so they would go die on it. Jesus is saying, you know, this is all in territory. you got to take up your cross daily and follow me. Isn't that where he went? Yeah. And whoever wants to save their life, if it's all about you, then boy, you're on your, it's, it's already over. But whoever loses their life for me is going to save it. So I think what we're supposed to realize here that this isn't a game. This isn't just play pretend. This isn't like a weekend hobby for people who like to be religious. He's saying, no, um, there's a battle raging for the souls and lives of people. And no wonder when Paul, just two or three later years later, writes to Christians in this city, in Ephesus, he, he challenges them to do everything they can to stand strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Verse uh, chapter 6, Ephesians, to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Verse 10, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, he's been in the day of evil. He knows what it feels like. He knows he almost went down. He said, but when that day comes, you're going to be able to stand. Stand your ground, and after you've done everything, stand. I don't know if you've had your evil day yet, but let me ask you this. How are you, when that day comes, how are you to face dark forces? Well, we've already seen in the story. It's all there. First, you got to be all in, in Christ. That's where it begins. All in, in Christ. That's what baptism symbolizes, by the way. I'm going all the way in. <laughs> I'm in his death. I'm in his life. And now his spirit is in me. And that's how you, that's, that's the bottom, that's the baseline. Not halfway in. Not half-baked, not just quoting hand-me-downs, 
but trusting Jesus Christ yourself for his forgiveness for your sin and his resurrection power to be in you. The arm of flesh will fail you. What does that mean? Your bank account can't bail you out. Your intellect will not figure it out. But by trusting Christ and saying, I make you my savior, his overcoming will be real in you when the day of evil comes. And so you need to be all in in Christ. Secondly, it means don't treat Jesus' name like an incantation. Like you know the magic words now, so you can just Jesus everything. And suddenly that's supposed to change everything. No, it's not just words. It's what's happening in here. This is like get to know Jesus. You trust him, and now you get to know him personally. Not just facts in your head, but something has happened inside of you. It's different because you know him. He's your shepherd. His rod and his staff are comforting you. He's the lamb who is the lion whose blood has freed you, and now you've got a story to tell. And when you tell your story, other people get to becoming into theirs. This is the, so no, trusting Jesus, knowing Jesus, and then following Jesus. Boldly following Jesus. I mean, full, bold obedience is the way forward. One step at a time with Christ. What does that mean? That means when the Holy Spirit puts his finger on something in your life and says, release that, then you release it. <laughs> you just do it. You know, you tell Jesus, my first answer is going to be yes. Whenever he says, may I, can I, will, yes, yes, yes. Because your will is what I want, Lord. When he wants you to release something, you release it. You don't hold on to the slop bucket from the pigsty in your far country. <laughs> you release it. You let it go. The drugs, you let them go. The porn, you let them go. The witchcraft, you let it go. The sorcery, you let it go. The idols, you let it go. The crystals, you let them go. <laughs> Should I say your smart device that's making you so dumb spiritually? Should I say it? You know, you, you let it go. And you say, Lord, you're my guide, and I'm listening to you. And now you would you teach me how to live your life? So what's happening here? Jesus is cleansing impurities. Why? So that he can fill you up with himself and pruning your branches back so that you can bear more fruit. And it takes full obedience, bold obedience to God to do that. So when he puts his finger on something, you say, yes, Lord. And then here's another way, staying connected to the body of believers. Paul had a team. You need one too. You want to rise to Life Mission 2.0, then we help one another in our battles, know how to wear our armor, know how to put on the breastplate of his righteousness, the sandals of his peace, the helmet of his salvation, you know, the belt of his truth. That we, we have other people teach us how to use the sword of the spirit, how to use the word of God to slice through the fog of war. That's what fellowship is about. That's why the community matters so much because we're not supposed to fight alone and we're not supposed to fight each other. We are supposed to fight the adversary together. And that's why we gather here and that's Life Mission 2.0. Paul closes by saying, now you gotta pray. Pray, pray for me. That whenever I speak, words may be given me 
so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. You know, here's something I have in common with Paul. We both need prayer. <laughs> you know, if you ever run out of things to pray for, just through, pray my way. And, and ask God to help me to be fearless declaring the gospel. This is so ironic because here Paul is the super apostle who says, man, I was so crushed. I was so far gone. I thought it was over. And now he's telling them, I'm facing fear. It's threatening. It's deep. It's real. It's keeping me. It's, it's trying to keep me from my life mission. It's trying to stop me from helping other people meet Jesus. And so you got to pray for me that God's love will cast out that fear in me so that others can keep on meeting him. I don't know what fear you're facing today, but I know there's, I know there's at least one fear in your life, and I can tell you it's also trying to keep you back from your life mission 2.0. And God has you here today so that he can put his finger on it and say, you got to let me have that. And then all you got to say is, then I release it. I release it. I release it. That's, how, that's what you got to say. So you can overcome the darkness, but it won't happen by superficial Christianity. You got to let it go deep in you. And to that end, as we bring this series to a journey's launch, we're going to do it with prayer. So our worship response team is going to come, and this altar we have been praying over. A group of us met this morning and just asked God that this would be the front line of advancing his kingdom in people's lives today. And so I want to invite anybody, not everybody, of course everybody can come, but I, I really want to invite those of you whose, whose hearts have been stirred already. You know that God has got his finger on something. And he said, this is you. And that's the thing. So say yes and release it. And so we got people here who are confidential in their prayers, but would like to pray for you by name if you'd let them, so that freedom can move you to the next level in your spiritual journey. Okay? So some of us today, this is going to be a release and receive prayer time. Release means, what is it that the Holy Spirit has told you? You know, you got to stop that. And you're going to say, but I've tried and I, I just keep doing it. I can't stop it. Okay, it's not about what you can do. It's just saying, if he said to you today, release it, then that's what he said, release it. So then in coming today and inviting somebody to pray, you can say, I want to release this. I had a young man come to me uh, this morning and said, I, I just got to release my anxiety. Okay, so what is it? The Holy Spirit's usually very specific. He will not shame you. He will not blame you. He will just say like a surgeon, you know that little dark spot right there? We're going to go get that. We're not going to mess with anything else. We're just going to keep you healthy. So you can come. You can pray. You can let them pray with you, for you, about what to release. And then you receive God's blessing. They're going to be inviting the Holy Spirit to fill you in a fresh way and receive his blessing. And then you can... Go be seated or invite somebody else to come pray with you or find your knees somewhere here. So you can do that if you want to today. The second group that I want to point out is if today you know that it suddenly dawned on you that you're religious but you may not know Jesus, that you got the facts but they've been hand-me-downs and you've been quoting your mom or you've been quoting your Sunday school teacher or you've been quoting somebody else, 
but it hasn't gotten out of your head into your heart, then here's what I want to invite you to do today. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, before people, then I will confess you before my Father in heaven. Would you like to know for sure that Jesus is saying, yep, she's with me. He's with me. Then today, here's how we're doing that. I'm not raising hands. I'm saying it's time to act. Don't just have ideas about it. Take action and go to the cross and you will find leaders available to help you cross the line of faith and enter in to make your profession of faith and get assurance that heaven is your home. You understand what I'm saying? So here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to stand together right now in that same motion. Some of you know you may just want to come on down and start praying with somebody. You can just say, excuse me, excuse me. I don't want to miss my blessing. It's waiting for me right down there. And uh, you can come. We're not going to linger long, but we want to give as many an opportunity to come for prayer as possible. So just please, yes, come now. And let's invite God's presence to visit us, those to your left, to your right, behind you, before you, that you're coming today to say, Lord, I'm releasing and I'm receiving. Come now. Yeah, just slip your way out and just come. And we've got like three guys right here interceding. There's another person over there. You come as we sing.